Hello everyone, this is Mary Beth Gassman and I'm excited to be with you for another episode of the Varying Viewpoints podcast, uh, which is sponsored by the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity and Justice at Rutgers University. And I am thrilled today to have with us Neil Charles, the Walter and Leonore Annenberg Professor of, in the Social Sciences in the Department of Sociology at the University of Pennsylvania, where she also serves as the chair of the Department of Africana Studies. It is exciting to be here with you, and um, I've got a lot of questions, so I hope you're excited and okay. ready to answer them. I have at least a few answers. Okay, great. You have this wonderful new book that just came out young, gifted, and diverse, origins of the new uh, black elite. So most of my questions are going to have to do with that. And I guess um, I wanted to start off by asking you, um, you know, I know you, but Mm -hmm. other people might not know you as well. And so can you share a bit about your professional background and especially your experience working in Africana studies and sociology? Sure. So um, I'm not somebody who had a calling to be in academia at all. In fact, it was the last thing that I thought I wanted to do. Um, My dad was a junior college sociology instructor. And so being a sociologist was like, no. And, um, and so instead I had, I had a pretty twisted path that really had to do with athletics. Um, I'm not an athlete, but I was really interested in the experience of uh, black people in athletics, both um, sort of division one, big college sports, but also professional sports, um, but always from a sociological lens. And um, because I wasn't an athlete and I felt I needed some legitimacy, I went to graduate school and the idea was to get the degree and then maybe go and become an athletic director somewhere. But I found that I really enjoyed research and that the the thing that really interested me about the experience of Blacks in uh, elite sport was really a microcosm of a larger experience of inequality and exploitation in society, and which I had the chance to explore in graduate school. And so I just sort of ended up staying. Um, I liked the schedule. Um, I really like the, the mentoring piece of it and the research piece of it. Uh, the teaching has grown on me. Um, so I, you know, that all happened at UCLA where I got my, uh, PhD in sociology and, um, my second job, uh, brought me to Penn. My first job was at Ohio state, uh, for three years and that job sort of arose out of a research project that led to this book. So uh, the National Longitudinal Survey of Freshmen. Um, I partnered with Doug Massey to do that. He was at Penn um, and they recruited me. And and so I moved. Um, And, you know, the point was really that that was a place that had people doing what I'm interested in doing, um, Mm -hmm. a strong program in, in race and ethnicity, and and a broad program because I do segregation and I do racial attitudes and public opinion. And, um, and it was in a city that allowed me to explore those kinds of issues. I don't, I don't like the idea of being disconnected from the population that I'm studying. So, um, and, uh, and as part of my experience as a junior faculty member, I got introduced to the center for Africana studies, um, my colleague Takufu Zuberi was the director, 
he put together this amazing works in progress group where um, my colleague Guy Ramsey and I were the only junior people. And we both got our tenure books written as part of that monthly group with people like Mary Frances Berry and Herman Beavers, um, giving us feedback on our work and, and really for me, helping me see that I had a book. Um, because I hadn't thought of myself as a book person, and now I have four of them, which yeah. is funny. Um, so um, I felt really connected to Africana Studies after that. And so I I got to Khufu to create a position for me in the center um, in anticipation of the service in administration that comes with getting tenure. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, I directed the center for nine years And during that time, I um, helped to establish the PhD program in Africana Studies and then to found the Department of Africana Studies. And so um, I was the founding chair for a year. I am now serving a full term as chair of the department. Um, I have my first joint PhD student that came in through sociology, but is also doing a PhD in Africana Studies. So that's really exciting for me because um, I'm able to combine the two places that I love most on campus. Um, I do, I direct a summer program for incoming freshmen that um, was established 36 years ago to target black students. It is now open to all students, but 95% of -hmm. the students who participate are of African descent. Um, It is a week-long intense academic experience that builds community, exposes them to Africana studies, Um, establishes relationships between students and faculty that persist throughout at least their first year. And I've done that for 17 years. So um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. And Mm -hmm. I I do have to say that um, when I was a professor at Penn, I always felt like incredibly uh, embraced and supported by Africana studies and the faculty in Africana studies. I completely understand in that regard. So, um, so that's great. Uh, so in uh, the book, which is like you said, your fourth book, mm-hmm. right? Um, you mentioned the idea of the, you know, quote, black elite. And can you speak a bit more on what that means and the implications that it has around the fight for racial equity. Yeah. So, you know, what we learned out of our first book in particular was that there is no stereotypic black student on these campuses, um, that in some ways the black student population is the most diverse. Um, And that really flies in the face of societal stereotypes about Black people and certainly the way that social science research has thought about Black people, Mm -hmm. right? There's this overwhelming focus on poor Blacks, disadvantaged Blacks. um, And while that might be true in the population as a whole, that Blacks are disproportionately Mm -hmm. um, lower income Um, non-college educated, it is not the case that the Black people who end up in these elite institutions are either uniformly low-income and disadvantaged, Mm -hmm. nor are they uniformly, you know, the stereotypic elite college student, which would be affluent and second second or third or fourth generation college. Um, There's a big immigrant subpopulation among this group of individuals uh, that is, you know, 
if if twenty five percent of our students are um, immigrant or second generation, only ten percent of blacks in the U.S. population are foreign born, mm-hmm. right? Um, if maybe eight percent um, of students are of, of blacks in the U.S. population are mixed race, and that really is a back of the napkin kind of calculation, there are many more mm-hmm. of those students in these institutions, and. On the flip side of that, we know that graduates of these kinds of institutions go on to live lives that have influence, mm-hmm. whether they are the um, Valerie Jarrett's, the Kamala Harris's, the, the Cory Booker's, um, or they're people who go into corporate America and become CEOs or increasingly starting their own hedge funds, you know, mm. um, those kinds of things. Or they're just people in their communities who have now the credential and this sort of wherewithal to make things happen, to to speak on behalf of larger communities or to mobilize larger communities that um, you still have a fairly small percentage of the Black population that is college educated. Mm. And even fewer of those are educated in these kinds of institutions that give them connections right, mm-hmm. to those kinds of spaces. And so that's what we were trying to to be attentive to was um, the diversity of that population uh, and, and to see what that means in terms of Black solidarity and, you know, political solidarity, right, because there have been questions about um, whether or not the, the sort of voting block um, would persist, whether or not the attitudes remain the same, right? There are intra-group mm-hmm. um, tensions between immigrant Blacks and multi-generational Native Blacks, for example. There can be some tension between monoracial Blacks and mixed-race Blacks around, you know, with questions around how mixed-race Blacks identify and what does that mean for their commitment to the Black community if they're if they're identifying as mixed or multiracial and not just identifying as black, um, which is a new phenomenon because it's only with the 2000 census that Mm, that was really an option that then spilled over from the census, say onto college applications. So when we collected our data in 1999, everybody screened in as being a member of one of the four major racial categories, but we had a separate question about how they identified themselves mm-hmm. and allowed students to to mark mixed and then tell us what that meant for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we wouldn't have found them otherwise had we just gone off of what the registrar had. Uh, yeah. um, and so, you know, what we find is that the students come in with more differences in their racial attitudes and identities Mm -hmm. than they leave with. Um, That over the course of their college experience, um, those Black students who might be categorized as as internalizing a more cultural explanation for Black racial inequality, right? That Blacks just don't try hard enough Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. or that they don't value education. Those those students by the end of college have shifted more toward a structural explanation for inequality so that they have come to learn either through their coursework or through experience um, that, um, that sometimes there are structural barriers 
um, that help us understand what's happening on campus and that there are larger structural barriers. And then the students who come in focusing on the structural barriers actually shift a little bit toward those cultural explanations um, Mm. because individually they start to see if it pays off to try hard, right? So it's working for me. And as a consequence, that then spills over to some of their larger racial attitudes so that by the end of the end of college, there's a convergence in their attitudes. So they have more in common than they did when they started. Um, But they both still see room for structural explanations. So to my mind, it, it, there, there is no fear that there's going to be this sudden huge shift of, of folks in the black population, you know, moving away from political ideologies and Mm -hmm. policy attitudes Mm -hmm. that, um, that would look to structure to make change. Okay. And just to kind of like go a little deeper on that, um, so you mentioned that you you don't necessarily think like that this new black elite is going to change the experience for black people. Um, is that what I'm hearing? Or like no, I think okay. what I yeah I think what I mean is I think there has been some concern that that this new black elite is increasingly distant from okay right yeah. this larger black population. But what I think we really wanted to emphasize is that, no, they they actually are part of that larger Black population because, you know, about a third of them are low income and or first generation college. Mm -hmm. About a third of them are what we would describe as middle class. And about a third of them are affluent, meaning, um, you know, they may be legacy at Mm -hmm. their institutions, meaning that their parents are... um, affluent. They might have moms who stay at home. Mm -hmm. Um, They might have gone to elite private schools their entire existence and, you know, vacationed in fancy places. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and nonetheless, they are often connected to extended family Mm -hmm. who are still living modest or low income working class black lives. And so their families might be helping uh, extended family members they may still be attending church in okay. a, yeah. the neighborhood that their family grew out of. And so they are not so different that they cannot um, connect with what we have thought about as this quote unquote black experience yeah. in the United States and, and immigrant blacks, again, I think um, and particularly second generation immigrant blacks, but you know, their black experience in the United States is different. Yeah. But what they come to recognize is the difference maybe between their experience and that of their friends who are multi-generational American blacks and understand the dynamic of that in a way that they might not have before and mm-hmm. su- such that they too can um, can support what have been traditionally black American political positions, mm-hmm. in part because they they start to understand that while they may be better off economically in a lot of ways, they're still experiencing right. prejudice and discrimination. Right. Right. So they they're learning that they're not immune to it. Mm-hmm. Um, that and that we all experience it to one degree or another. Mm-hmm. But what the other thing we tried to really emphasize is that we're not our our disadvantage is not all the same, right? It's relative. So if, if I have 
class privilege, even if I have skin tone disadvantage, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Doesn't mean I won't experience prejudice and discrimination, but I might not experience as much. Right. I might not notice it right. quite so much, mm-hmm. right? It might not keep me from getting to where I want to go as quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it's those nuances that we're trying to kind of tease out. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay, great. No, no, no. That's really, really interesting. Actually. Um, okay. So, um, in the book, you also mentioned that, that the black elite graduates with optimism. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yet remain guarded about racial inequality. Mm-hmm. And uh, can you talk about what does that mean for racial equality and equity movements and, um, I guess I'm also wondering if you think true equity can be achieved. That's a huge question. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, so I think the the sort of paradox of the optimism and the guardedness or, or pragmatism, mm-hmm. if you will, um, is that, again, they're very optimistic about their own individual chances. Okay. Right? So... They recognize that they are coming out of these elite institutions and that that just sort of opens the world up to them um, in ways that, mm-hmm. um, again, if you're talking about the the shares of that those Black students who have come out of working class circumstances or uh, modest middle class circumstances, right, that, that's kind of a new thing. If they are, if they came in affluent, right, they're just kind of perpetuating what has already begun in their families. And Mm -hmm. so as individuals, they recognize that one, they have a college degree um, and that most Americans don't Mm -hmm. um, and that they have a college degree from the kinds of institutions that people want to hire. Right. So the world is kind of their oyster Mm -hmm. in a way they may have participated in internship programs and other things and, and they have recruiters coming to campus so that they see a world for them that is open and full of opportunity at the same time that they recognize that it's not that way for everybody right. who looks like them. And I say that with air quotes, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And that that does have consequences for okay. yeah. the black population as a whole. Um, we started in sociology talking about a bifurcation of the black population back in the late 80s, early 90s, where those who were benefiting from affirmative action, right, were really taking off. Right. And those who couldn't benefit from that were falling behind. And so they recognize that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think are committed in in a way to doing something about that and wanting to be part of trying to change that. Um, you know, but I think you can you can recognize that you're going to be okay individually mm-hmm. and still understand that that's not that's not the norm. That's not what's typical, right? right? right. And, and so I think that's what that paradox is, um, that they see that their own circumstance is moving in the right direction, right. Um, but that they're, in, in some ways, they're leaving behind if they're not careful yeah. about what they do, yeah. they're leaving others behind. And so, um, and I think that traditionally, 
the, you know, the black population in the U S has sort of taken on a communal, um, responsibility. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so I don't think it has to be problematic for, mm-hmm. um, solidarity politics for the pursuit of, um, something that approaches racial equality. Mm-hmm. Cause I, you know, I have to be honest and you know this about me, Mary, yeah. but I'm a pessimist. Um, and I, <laughs> and I'm an optimist. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so I don't know. Yeah, and, yeah. and certainly looking around right now, yeah. it's hard to imagine. Um, I have always known that these things kind of go in fits and starts. Um, but you know, I was thinking in preparation for this about how it took, what, 89 years to get from emancipation to Brown versus the board of education. Right. And then another 10 years before you get civil rights act, it has taken us two thirds that time to start undoing it. Yeah. Right. And I am not clear that, you know, that everybody who cares about this has really gotten the memo. Yeah, yeah. And so I I fear that we're in for some kind of dark times before there's another sort of move in that direction. And and so, again, I think that there is a subset of various populations. There's a subset of the Black population, of the Latino population, um, of the Asian population who... um, will be okay economically, but who may feel less safe. Right. right? Um, And I don't know how, you know, I don't know how long that has to go on before we see another one of those kinds of movements. I also worry that social media on the one hand means you can get a message to more people, but it feels like, um, well, first of all, we know it has made our attention spans shorter. Yeah, I yeah. think that I tell my students all the time that we we were taught history in a way where it really doesn't sink in how long it took to get those rights. Yeah, And so our attention span is short. It gets cold outside, mm-hmm, whatever. Mm-hmm. And we kind of get tired or bored. And I just, and I have been saying to my students for 25 years, like we're not built the way that, that my parents were built, right. For that kind of, of, of sustained protest. Um, and so I, you know, and there is no obvious leader, right. I love that black lives matter took this kind of grassroots, um, community specific approach, Mm -hmm. But it does also feel to me that we would benefit from a, a sort of broader, whether it's a coalition or it's a few individuals, I don't know, but yeah. it, it still feels like we're looking for that that leader, oh, yeah. Yeah, right? Does, and I just think that that leader could come from anywhere in the Black population for the reasons that I've, I've described, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It's interesting that we're sitting here having this conversation while the Supreme Court is debating, yeah. you know, affirmative action. Yeah, I was thinking of that when you were when mm-hmm. you were talking. Um, so another question I have is, um, are there things that educators, especially because we're talking about the college and university population, mm-hmm. are there things that faculty can do to support these students who you talk about in your book around 
um, issues of uh, racial uh, inequity? Are there, um, I guess, like, are there, are there not just black faculty, but mm -hmm. like faculty in general, mm -hmm. are there ways to, um, to support these students and uh, contribute to their experiences? Yeah. And yeah. And so I think one of the things that I have been concerned about, you know, one of one of the hats that I wear at Penn is is as a faculty co-director for Penn First Plus, which is our first gen low income student initiative. Mm -hmm. And I expressed concern from the very beginning that our institution keeps in mind that not all black students or students of color are first gen or low income. All right but that all of our black students and students of color need support that is beyond just the sort of typical because they are marginalized populations on this affluent, yeah. predominantly white elitist campus. Um, and so that has been something that I kind of stay concerned with and that, um, you know, one of the things that I try to help people remember is that when students leave, it's almost never primarily about their ability to do the work. Yeah. That yeah. their their ability to do the work becomes impeded by other factors. Other factors, yeah. the money, the hostility they face, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. And so what are the things we can do to make our environment more welcoming mm -hmm. for our students so that we eliminate those things? Mm -hmm. Um because, you know, if, if we look at 40% of the students in our, in our sample were met the sort of clinical definition of moderate risk for depression, mm, gosh, um, yeah. right? And that cuts across, it, it cut across class lines. Um, it was certainly more heavily female. It cut across whether they were immigrant or not. Um, it cut across all of those things. Uh, which says to me that there's a lot that we can do about making the university more hospitable. Mm -hmm. And some of that is just being aware um, and, you know, educating ourselves and one another about what it means to be a marginalized, a member of a marginalized population and being aware of the scripts that we have about our expectations for certain kinds of students or the assumptions that we make about different kinds of students um, when we see them. So, you know, one of the things that I'm doing is that I'm actually buying copies of my book for the undergraduate advising office and encouraging them to, to read it yeah. and say that I will come and talk to them. Uh, you know, I'll do the same thing with university life just to kind of think about what are the things that we do that end up being problematic. Right, um, right. Yeah. you know, and, and how can we make it a more hospitable environment? I also do hope because I think some of the tension is intra-group. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I also hope that there is room for some conversations around how to, how the cultural centers, for example, and how Africana studies um, can facilitate kind of helping the students themselves mm -hmm. and supporting them in bridging those, those divides, um, and, um, and working together, you know, I think it's hard if you get back to this whole thing around affirmative action. Mm -hmm. I think part of the reason that you see such a high percentage of immigrant black students, right. Is that, um, 
those students come with more human capital because it's harder to immigrate, right? It take it's a self-selected process. Yeah, yeah. And so when we looked at the backgrounds of our immigrant students, the African students in particular, you know, they've got two parents with advanced degrees, they're earning higher incomes, they're going to better schools, they're taking more AP classes, they're, mm-hmm. you know, they have higher SAT scores. And so diver- creating a diverse class, if we're using SAT scores, grades, and AP as a big indicator of the ability to, to succeed, yeah, yeah, those are the things we look at. And, and that's not necessarily the best way to do that, but it does mean that we're going to end up with a higher than average um, number of, of immigrant students. And, and I know that that's a source of tension and concern for the longer term American black students yeah. who, yeah. who will say to me sometimes, you know, I feel like I can go all day and not see another, what, what they call it, pen regular black, yeah. right. That they're running, that they see a lot of immigrants. They're, they're African, they're Caribbean, um, mm-hmm. but they're not seeing blacks like them. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. matters to them. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so, so, you know, there is, there is that tension as well. And, and that is something I don't think that forces external to the black community at, at, at universities can confront, right. Yeah. That intragroup tension. Yeah. Yeah. I think that has to be acknowledged right. and addressed again, black cultural centers, can play a big part in that and departments or, or centers for African-American or Africana studies can be places to handle that. But that larger thing that recognizing that belonging has more to do with income Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or more to do has to do with more than income. More than income. Um, I think that's a place where you can get faculty to think about the way that they're engaging with their students, Mm -hmm. um, what they tolerate in terms of discourse Mm-hmm. in class, what they contribute themselves yeah, to discourse yeah. in classes. And I think administrations can be thinking about those things as well. Yeah. And I was just thinking about how, um, um, a, a lot of folks at, um, these, uh, elite institutions and just colleges and universities in general sometimes are fully unaware of the diversity within blackness, mm-hmm. like, especially, especially people who are not, not black, right? right? They're fully unaware of it and that they, they really just do see color. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And don't understand like the full diversity and those, um, intergroup issues that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it really is good that you're buying your books for people. <laughs> it's really great. Um, um, we also bought some of your books. So. Well, I appreciate that. But, you know, I just thought, like, what would be the best way? Yeah. You know, this book was personal for me. Yeah. Um, not only because of my own experience as a student um, and, a, and a, you know, and a Black person, mm-hmm. but also because of the hundreds of students yeah. that I interact with at my university. Right. Um, and so I, you know, I want it to do more, right. And I want to have more of an impact on the space that I'm in. And so I just thought, well, you know, it'll be harder for them to tell me no, if I just buy it for them. Yeah, that's exactly, Not yeah. that I think they would have said no, <laughs> you know, but, um, yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, sometimes you just got to buy your book for people, folks. Um, so. <laughs> 
use that author discount. Yeah, yes, it's true. Okay, um, so the last question I have for you is, um, you know, we probably have some people who are listening and interested in your career. And I guess, like, I'm just wondering if you could offer any advice for um, younger scholars who or emerging scholars who are looking for a career in um, Africana studies mm-hmm. or maybe sociology and who are interested in addressing some of these inequities, you know, um, how do you approach that? And what are some best practices? And just mm. wondering expertise. Oh, I think things are really different now than they were, you know, when I came out of graduate school and when I was going through being a junior faculty member. So, you know, I never wrote only about black people before tenure ever. Oh, okay. Um, wow. It was not something that people, white people, yeah, would take seriously. Right. Right. Yeah. Coming from me, um, and and I think most people in in my circumstance, right, being young, female, black, yeah. junior, yeah. So the first talk I gave after tenure was actually in GSE at Penn and it was on high achieving black students mm-hmm. out of these data um, because I wanted to show there was no pattern. Like there was no clear way to understand why the high achievers were the high achievers. It wasn't simply that the affluent ones were the high achievers. It mm-hmm. wasn't simply that the immigrant ones were the black, were the high achievers. Mm-hmm. There, it just, it wasn't because there is more going on, right. That impacts yeah. our performance. So, um, so I think now you can, do yeah. research that is targeted at a population. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it remains important for better or worse. You know, that old adage that working twice as hard thing still matters. Mm-hmm. You might get further than half as far now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think, you know, it's still, it still matters. I think we don't get to, um, relax in the same way. And yeah, you know, that, um, pardon my vernacular here, it sucks. Mm. But I think that, um, you can have a huge impact in a way that I couldn't have imagined. Mm. Right. I think I just wanted to, you know, be a professor. And I thought I would have, my impact would be on the students that I actually engaged with. Right. Right. I didn't think about the ways that I could impact people beyond that. Um, and, and I think, um, it, it can still be very rewarding. I think we have to be more careful about protecting our time that, that the, the sort of one of the downsides of this whole diversity movement is that there aren't enough of us and our institutions want us to be on everything because they want to make sure that somebody that looks like us is in the room. And that's great because we should be in those rooms, but we can't be in all of the rooms. So you either have to commit to bringing more of us Mm -hmm. into the space or um, recognize that, you know, we can't be in all of the places at once and still do the things that we're still expected to do in terms of um, our own productivity Mm-hmm. And it, our research productivity, our mentoring of students, our teaching, um, our training of graduate students. So I think the big thing is what I see is that 
students, graduate students now in particular, really are more active um, in terms of, you know, being engaged with organizations, campus organizations, discipline-specific organizations. Um, what I say to them while they're students is, you know, don't forget what you came here for, mm-hmm. because you're you you will have yeah. no influence if you don't get tenure. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I looked at it as like I was playing the long game. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there were things I didn't do as an assistant professor that I wanted to do. But I knew that if I did those things, I might not get tenure. And if I didn't get tenure, then I wasn't even going to be there anymore. Right, right, yeah. And so I think it's important to keep that in mind and that these institutions lag far behind social attitudes oh, and yeah, norms. Yeah. And so we're still, we're just starting to have a conversation about whether we should count engaged scholarship, meaning that public intellectual yeah, life, yeah. and if we do, how. Right. Um we say we care about service, but really when you get in that personnel committee room, it's it's really, you know, your research and visibility yep. and then your teaching mm-hmm. and then your service. And yeah. I think it's important to keep that in mind and that those things don't those things change very slowly. Right. And right. so the thing that has not changed from when I came up, in fact it's harder. I didn't have to have as many publications yeah. to get a job, to get tenure. Right. As as folks do now. And I think we, we cannot lose sight that that is still the way this game is played. Right. 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 And, and that, and, and I can't over as over emphasize the importance of having mentors and advocates, some of whom look like you, but some who do not. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the ones who do not are, are again in the spaces where those little backroom conversations are having, and you need to know when those are about you, what is being said. Right. Um, and, and how to think about those things. And, you know, you can bring those folks over to see your perspective and worldview, and then they can share that with others um, who look like them. And, and that sort of helps to widen the path for us. Um, cause I think there's still a lot that folks don't understand that they, that they don't realize oh, yeah. it takes a long time for it to internalize. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, you know, I think you've got to keep your eye on the prize. And I think you've got to um, understand the rules of the game and that it takes a long time to change them. So it's not that we shouldn't try to change them. Mm-hmm. It's that we shouldn't expect that the work we do is going to benefit us. Right, it's going right. to benefit somebody right. down the line. And then, and then again, I think balance. You've got to have a life outside of this or, or you're just going to be miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think I don't want it. I am not what I do, right? What I do is just, it's what I do, but it's mm-hmm. not who I am. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to kind of maintain that boundary because there's a lot of rejection in the academy. Oh, yeah, so much. And if, <laughs> if we make that who we are, right, it, it, it's just awful. Right, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Balance is a good thing. <laughs> So we're going to end on an optimistic (laughs) point, which is balance is a good thing. So, um, well, I want to say thank you for joining us today. This is great. I learned so much. I'm so excited. Um, And I hope that uh, folks will go out and buy Camille's book, uh, which is called Young, Gifted, and Diverse, Origins of the New Black Elite. And it's published by 
Princeton University Press. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. This was great.